Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. As your pastor, I have every Sunday, but from time to time especially, the challenging task of preaching God's Word on sensitive topics for us as a congregation. This morning, the Lord brings us back to the book of Mark. We've taken a five or six week break from the book as we've had other occasions that merited us being in other places in the Bible, but this morning we come back to the book of Mark in Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12 where the Lord wants to instruct us on divorce and remarriage. I know that among us are divorcees. I know this. And they need comfort. You need comfort brought to you from the Scriptures. I also know that the pain of divorce runs deep. The consequences of divorce stretch wide. And often regret looms right there underneath the surface. I, I understand this as I've talked with many. But I also know that sitting in our congregation are those who have not experienced divorce that are living in marriage and As a pastor, I must instruct them from the Word of God not to go there. There there needs to be a warning to all who are in marriage, even those who have divorced in the past but find themselves in marriage today. There needs to be instruction and warning that it may not be repeated or it may not be done for the first time. Amongst married couples, in some cases, the temptation of divorce lurks in the background on a steady basis. And the Lord gives us texts like this one this morning to instruct and to warn so that we don't go places that he has not provided for us. So I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 10. We will be in verses 1 through 12. Let's read the text together as we prepare our hearts to be instructed by God. Here's what Mark writes. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we walk up to this text, some perhaps bristling, some perhaps intimidated, some perhaps curious. Father, I pray that we all walk up to this text faithful and obedient to your word. Help me to rightly handle these verses for your glory. In the name of our Christ, I ask this. Amen. As pastorally as I can, I must speak to all of us this morning from God's word. As pastorally as I can. My task is to, in this message this morning and in our time together, is to comfort those who have experienced a divorce. That is my task often, week in and week out. But it's also my task to warn those who haven't experienced divorce to not go there. I've got two purposes this morning that God has called me to be about. The body of this sermon will be devoted to handling this text, and this text is a warning passage, a passage of instruction. This text does not speak to those who have experienced divorce from a a perspective of wanting to comfort. There are places for that, and we will go there. The body of my sermon this morning will be of warning and instruction. 
But at the conclusion, I will come back and I will provide the comfort to those who have experienced divorce because there is redemption in Jesus Christ. My task is also this. (laughs) Tragically, my task is to speak from the Bible things that our culture long ago dismissed. And so my speaking today from the Bible is going to be extremely countercultural. Uh, what Jesus says to these Pharisees was countercultural 2,000 years ago, and so not much has changed. And so I've got a challenging task this morning, and you do too, because you are to hear God's word and you are to bend your knee to his word. As long as I faithfully proclaim it, I urge you, please submit to the word of our Christ. I'm going to base this message this morning on one foundational premise. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. And the premise is this, the purpose of marriage is to proclaim the truth of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. That is the premise that we are operating from, and that is the premise that Jesus speaks from as well. Here, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, Paul writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So marriage is a mystery that refers to Jesus Christ and his relationship with his bride, the church, us. That is the premise that I am preaching from as we work through this this text in Mark chapter 10. Marriage rests on a very high plane in the kingdom of God. And we need to dwell there in our marriages. So I've got four points. I've got a fifth reference that I'll point us to because I don't think time will permit me to go there. But I've got four key points from this text that we need to unpack. And here is the first one. First, we see that Jesus is tested. And there's an attempt on the part of the Pharisees to entrap him. They're always about this. Look at verses 1 and 2. He left there, he went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's a key phrase, in order to test him. Jesus' custom throughout his life and ministry was to teach the people. The Pharisees' custom in the life and ministry of Jesus was to harass our Christ. Jesus was a shepherd amongst the people. The the Pharisees, (laughs) the Pharisees were heresies, and their task was to be jackals and to lead the flock astray and to capture the shepherd in a failing as he spoke. The test is this. They asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? We need to jump over. Don't turn there. But in Matthew chapter 19, this same passage is paralleling what Mark wrote. And Matthew adds a few more phrases that are critical. We're going to look at two today. And the first one is this. Uh, Matthew adds, for any reason. Here the text says... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Question mark. But in Matthew, it adds, for any reason. We need to understand the context and even the geography of where this question is asked, where this test is implemented. In verse 1, it says, he is beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan. That would be eastward. And we need to understand that the last time we were in this region beyond the Jordan, we preached a passage that had John the Baptist calling out Herod Antipas, who divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, whom she divorced, Herodias. And John the Baptist calls them out on this unbiblical, ungodly divorce. And if you remember, that got John the Baptist beheaded. It's a long story, but he ended up beheaded as a result of calling out Herod and Herodias in this unbiblical marriage. These Pharisees would love for Jesus to get the John the Baptist treatment. 
That's their objective as they test him in this region beyond the Jordan. Now, where are the Pharisees coming from as they ask Jesus this question? Well, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, fifth book in your Bible, but back in the Old Testament. We need to understand the Old Testament text that these Pharisees are camping out on. This is where God has given Moses a second time the law. Deuteronomy means second giving of the law. And God has instructed Moses to write down to the people of Israel some laws concerning divorce. And here's what Moses writes. This is the text from which these Pharisees are testing Jesus. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." That's a long sentence in the Bible. That's like Paul. Paul in Ephesians, what, 1, 3 through 14 is one sentence? Well, this is Moses writing like Paul. That's a long sentence. But in this sentence, we see the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, is it lawful for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce for any reason? The question is, What qualifies as some indecency? Look back with me in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, the question the Pharisees are wanting to get to is, what is some indecency? Is that lawful? And we need to define some indecency. And Jesus does as well. There were two schools of thought in rabbinical interpretation at this time. One was the school of Hillel. And this school of rabbis was very, very liberal. I mean, extremely liberal in how they interpreted the Old Testament law. They provided a man grounds for divorce if his wife spoke to another man on the street if his wife wore her hair down in public, if his wife spoke disparagingly about her in-laws in front of her husband, even if his wife burned his dinner, they said that was something that was displeasing and that was grounds for divorce. Very, very liberal interpretation of the law. That is pathetic. There's another school of rabbinical interpretation, the school of Shammai. The school of Shammai was a little less liberal, still liberal, but a little less liberal. They were conservatively liberal, if we might say. And they took indecency to be an offense that was just short of adultery. So maybe indecent exposure, maybe flirtatious behavior, but it was something that was just short of of adultery, and the reason being adultery was punishable by death, by stoning. And so they said that there are some subcategories to adultery that would merit a man to divorce his wife. Again, very liberal, but not as liberal as the school of Hillel. Well, I want to show you the modern school of biblical interpretation in our modern, even America, in our modern world this morning. Because the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel can be found in the school of American morality as well. There's a book that was published. I'm not going to give you the title of the book because I don't want it to get credit. But I have found a summary uh, on the back of a dust jacket of a book on divorce. And I want you to hear what this says. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of. 
indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. How does that sit with you? Divorce can be an engine for personal growth. That is a lie from Satan. Divorce can be the most successful thing you have ever done. That is a lie. A wicked, filthy lie. Divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. A personal triumph. Not if you read this. No way. You can't twist this anywhere remotely close to that. I don't make it a practice to put words in Jesus' mouth. But I'm going to tell you that I do believe that if these two authors, it's a man and a woman that wrote this book, if they stay right there and they meet Jesus Christ one day when he comes again, I would imagine Jesus might say these words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This man and woman that wrote this book are of their father, the devil. Period. I don't want to soften that. We live in a culture that embraces that kind of thinking. We live in a culture that really made a radical change in the late 1960s in a concept called no-fault divorce. Up until the 1960s, you could not get a divorce in America unless you could prove that one of the partners in the marriage was sexually unfaithful, adultery. No divorce unless that could be substantiated. In the late 1960s, this no-fault divorce concept enters in. It comes in not a surprising place. It comes in through the state of California and a governor named Reagan who was divorced himself. And they enacted legislation that based it upon the idea of irreconcilable differences. If you just have differences in your marriage that you can't reconcile, you can get a divorce. And that has trickled to the point that today almost half of our society goes through divorce even within the context of the church. Great Britain, this is an astonishing fact, Great Britain right now is considering legislation to adopt no-fault divorce. Still to this day in Great Britain, it is only grounds for divorce if adultery is found within the marriage. Can you believe that in Europe of all places? But now what's happening is America is going and influencing Europe instead of Europe influencing America when it comes to divorce. And I dare say, I'm not hopeful that Great Britain will hold the course. I want you to consider something. This is a quick aside. Can you believe that right now in our culture, we are having conversations about transgender bathrooms? Can you believe this? Do you want to know how we get here? We get here back in the 60s when we start tearing asunder marriage and making it easy to walk away from a covenant relationship that was ordained by God. For you see, if you can tear down the most important relationship that God has established between two people on earth, And if you can rend it asunder for whatever reason, irreconcilable differences might mean. Because you want to be fulfilled in life. We can fast forward to 2016 where fulfillment means, you know, I'm not sure that I like the gender that God gave me. It's a slippery slope. 
And it took 40 to 50 years to get here, but it starts on a slope that begins with tearing down and watering down the glorious gift of marriage that God's given man and woman. So, having said all that, looking at the schools of Hillel and Shammai and looking at the school of modern-day America and maybe even Europe and the world, what does Jesus do with these easy divorce Pharisees? Here's my second point. My second point is Jesus takes them to the very law of Moses that they're quoting to him. Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hard hardness, your hard heartedness, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus answers these lawyers with a question from the law. He says, what did Moses command you? So it doesn't matter what the school of Hillel or Shammai say. He does not answer their questions of men with laws of men, but with the law of God. And I would say to us this morning, it does not matter on this issue what our president says, what our Congress says, or what our Supreme Court says. It does not matter. We answer this issue, this law of man question, only with the law of God. We must imitate Jesus in this. This is a time when we should not submit to our government when our government calls us to sin in easy divorce. There are times we need to honor our government because God delegated authority. But when that government makes it easy and endorses us sinning against the law of God, we say no thanks. And we run the other direction. Moses made a provision for divorce. Yes, it is true in in Deuteronomy 24. The culture at that time was male-dominated, and the men abused their role in marriage egregiously, often. And God steps in and has Moses pen a law that regulated the sinfulness of men. God does not de novo endorse and command divorce. God comes in and says, because sin has happened in marriages, we're going to put some regulations in place to protect the innocent in a broken marriage. Let's read it again, Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, this is instructions for what happens with a woman that is divorced by her husband for some indecency. It goes on to say, I will summarize, that if this divorced wife that this man sent away goes and marries another man, And he hates her, the text says, and divorces her. So divorce is an act of hate. He hates her and divorces her. Or even if he dies, thereby making her free to remarry, she cannot be married again to that original first husband. That's what God is regulating. He's regulating that so that a man doesn't easy divorce his wife and a few years later say, you know, she wasn't that bad after all. I'll bring her back in. He's saying a divorce is final and you cannot come back to her and that is a means of regulating sin and discouraging a man from divorcing her because in God's eyes that divorce is permanent and remarriage to that woman is not an option that's the spirit of Deuteronomy 24 these Pharisees are taking it places it doesn't belong Moses was not commanding divorce but he gave a command to forbid remarriage after divorce. Continuing with the scripture, let me give you my third point now. Jesus refutes the lying position of these Pharisees with the writings of Moses, yes, but now he goes back further to the writings of Moses in the book of Genesis. He goes back to the creation account even before the fall. Look in verse 6. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, there's our Genesis link, 
God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's Genesis 2.24. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus first takes these Pharisees back to the law of Moses that they're speaking from in Deuteronomy 24. And then he takes them all the way back to the very, very beginning in God's original design in the garden. And Jesus, by doing so, gives us four reasons why it is unlawful to divorce. And here they are. And we're going to just basically preach through the book of Genesis a little bit here. Number one, God made one man, God made one woman, and he made them for each other. The emphasis is on one of each. Jesus says God made them male and female. So monogamy, monogamy was the design, and there is no provision for polygamy in God's created order within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. It is singular, and there is no backup plan in case the marriage doesn't work out because there is only Adam and Eve. Number two, God made marriage the pinnacle of all human relationships on earth. Watch this. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, Jesus quotes. At that time, the most important relationship was a child to parent. And Jesus says, and God says in Genesis, this relationship between a man and a woman is so important that he's going to leave the ones who were used by God to create them, mom and dad, they will be left, and this man will hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. So husband and wife is the most important relationship on earth, and even the parent-child relationship is altered so that the marriage relationship may be made the pinnacle of all human relationships. Yeah, we've got the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. Yes, but even above that, a man and a woman are to be pledged and betrothed and faithful and loyal to one another because of that premise that I started this whole message with. It is a mystery that unfolds and proclaims the relationship between Christ and his church. And there's language in here that's strong. Hold fast to his wife. Hold fast, not for a little while. Not hold on loosely, not hang out with, hold fast to his wife. There's a permanency to that term. Super glue. Till death do they part. Number three, God designed the intimacy of marriage. Look at what he says. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The redundancy is for emphasis. There is intimacy here. Two become one. You can't get closer than that. One is an indivisible number. We can divide two, but we can't divide one. Hold fast means permanent. We see other texts like uh, Paul writes in, uh, oh goodness, where, I don't know, in one of the Pauline epistles. Well, no, it's 1 Corinthians 7. We'll be there perhaps later. Paul writes, uh, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There is a picture of intimacy throughout the scriptures in the marriage relationship, and it is not to be undone. Oneness. A man and a woman are to be so one together that their own bodies are not even their own. We're talking extreme intimacy. Number four, marriage is God's work, not man's. Here's what Jesus says. And boy, this is significant. Jesus adds to the Genesis text here. This is not found in Genesis. Jesus provides his commentary on what Moses wrote. And by the way, only Jesus can do that because Jesus is God and Jesus wrote Genesis. <laughs> 
Trinitarian Christians, aren't we? That's right. So Jesus adds this, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Just as God made man and woman, he made them in his own image. God made the marriage between a man and a woman. And no man can undo God's work. No man can destroy God's created oneness. Can't be done. We must view divorce, I think, pretty radically. I want you to go with me on this. I want us to view divorce as a type, a type of murder. That's extreme language. But I want to show you my premise for this. In Genesis 9-6, Moses says, or Moses writes, God's speaking to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is where we get the death penalty. When a man kills another man, that man's life is required of him, and the reason is God made man in his image, so to murder someone is punishable by death. Again, I'm saying divorce is a type of murder. I'm not saying it's literal murder. It's a type of murder. It needs to be likened to murder. Now I want you to listen to Malachi 2.16, very last book in the Old Testament. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God, the Lord of the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. That sounds murderous to me. That's how strong the Bible is against divorce. Marriage is a new creation of God where he takes two image bearers and molds them into oneness that cannot be separated. To terminate a marriage is to rip apart God's created oneness. To rip it apart and to cover garments with violence. It's extreme language. And we need to take heed of God's word and what it portrays as God's attitude towards divorce. Now I want to consider one more thing in light of all that. I want you to consider the, the absolute lie of a do- divorce certificate. It's a lie. No man can write on some piece of paper something that undoes what God has joined together Because Jesus says what God has joined together, let not man separate. So a man-made certificate of divorce in some court of law somewhere does not undo what God established in that marriage between that one man and that one woman. In God's eye, it is still, it is still a one flesh union. Now, Now we must ask the question, is there any exception to this law? Is there any grounds to where divorce can be entered into and still be, in the eyes of God, at least for one party, right and just? And I do believe there is. I believe there's two. I'll point to the second one because it's not in this passage. Um, But I think there are two, and so... Let's now look, look at verse 10 of Mark 10. Let's read the last three verses. And we're going to need to jump over to Matthew for a minute. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the divorce and remarriage is called adulterous here by Jesus. Now please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, just a few pages back to the left of the book of Mark. In Matthew 19, we'll look at verse 9. As I said earlier, Matthew adds a, few, a couple of phrases to the text that Mark does not have, and here is a very, very important one. In Matthew 19, 9, 
we read this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, comma, except for sexual immorality, comma, and marries another, commits adultery. Circle that except for sexual immorality. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says the same thing there. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give, you, give her a certificate of divorce. That's Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. But I, Jesus, say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus gives this what we call an exception clause to the no divorce and no remarry command. We have an exception clause here. There is an exception to no divorce. And it is when in a marriage the sin of sexual immorality exists. The Greek word is porneia. You know what word we get from that. A man or a woman can be just and righteous before God in divorcing a a sexually unfaithful spouse. And I want to give you an example. I want to introduce you to a young man named Joseph in the very beginning book of, of the book of Matthew. For Joseph is betrothed to Mary. That is an extremely formal engagement. They have not come together yet because she is a virgin. When Joseph, betrothed to Mary, discovers that his betrothed is expecting a child, the text says this, Matthew 1.19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Scripture says Joseph is a just man and he was going to divorce her quietly. And I absolutely believe it's because he thinks we've got an exception clause in place here. Sexual immorality. So in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death, the offending spouse, thereby freeing the wronged spouse to be free to marry again. In the New Testament, it's no longer punishable by death. In New Testament adultery, it is punished with approved divorce based on this exception clause, and the wronged spouse is free to marry. There are many opinions about this. This is where I believe the text goes. There are some that go all the way to say there is no grounds for remarriage no matter what. You can research those. I think there are too many gymnastics that have to be done with Scripture to come to that conclusion. So do believe that a conservative and faithful position to take with the Scriptures on this matter is there is one exception in this passage for divorce and remarriage, and it is that of sexual immorality or adultery. So if you divorce for any other reason besides this sexual immorality and you remarry, it is then you who would be committing adultery because you are not divorcing on biblical grounds. Now I want to give a word of caution here. I want to give a word of caution. This is not a license for divorce. We have to be very careful here. If The tragedy of unfaithfulness occurs in marriage. It is not a license to run down to divorce court and get this thing undone. Because the biblical call to the Christian life is one of reconciliation. One of appealing to a brother or sister in Christ. And saying, I ask you to please repent of this sin Turn and do it no more. And I would love to grant you forgiveness. And I would love for us to repair our marriage. And I'd love for us to have a testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ and the redemption that's found in Him as we image Him in our marriage. And if that failing partner consents, you are to live in that marriage for 50 more years. Or until God calls one of you home. But in the event that the sinning party will not repent and continues and continues and will not bend to the word of God after exhausting all efforts, 
this exception clause is something for you to then start considering. So this is not a prescription for divorce, but a provision for divorce. And it must not be used as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Great links must be gone to to seek reconciliation. Now, I said that there was a second exception for divorce. I'm going to point you to it. We're not going to be able to spend time on it this morning. But over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 15, you will see that there is a provision there. This is God inspiring Paul to write, so this is the Word of God. There is a provision there for someone to be free to remarry if an unbelieving spouse divorces them and abandons them. Okay, so I think that's the second grounds for someone to remarry after a divorce. The first being adultery or sexual immorality, and the second being abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Perhaps on another occasion we can talk through that, but again, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 15 is where I would point you for some study on that. So let me conclude with this as we transition to the table now. I said at the beginning that the purpose of marriage is to proclaim the truth of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. When people divorce for unbiblical reasons, and there's only two biblical reasons, they proclaim a lie in their lives about Jesus Christ and his church. Their message to the world to their partner, to their spouse, to their children, to the world is a lie about Jesus Christ and his church. They're not imitating that relationship at all. And that is serious grounds to be standing upon. They are attempting by human policies and procedures to break God's created oneness in that marital union. And that is not a place that anybody needs to go. And furthermore, when such a person remarries, a person who has not divorced on biblical grounds, when such a person remarries, the truth is, in God's eyes, they were never divorced to begin with. And that's why it is adulterous to then go remarry. That's the truth. And so this morning, I urge all of us in marriage, and as we consider marriage, I urge even our teenagers... This is coming your way one day, marriage. (laughs) I want you to get a big dose of biblical teaching on this before you're ever even remotely close to the concept of marriage so that you're rooted and grounded in the truth that what God has joined together, no man can separate. So let's be warned and be instructed and let's not sin against God in our marital relationships. And let's work through The difficulties, the differences, they are reconcilable in Jesus Christ. And we do need to live in our marriages with no fault because the fault has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where we need to be. And I would love, if you're struggling in marriage and the thought of divorce has crossed your mind, I would beg with you to make a beeline to my office or Josh's office this next week. We would love to take the scriptures and walk you away from that precipice that you would consider jumping off of. Now, I've warned and I've instructed, but now let me comfort, because I do know we need some comfort in this room, because there is divorcees, there are divorcees in our midst. Let me comfort you with this. Have you been divorced? Have you even been divorced for an unbiblical reason? The sin has been committed. I want you to know that there is forgiveness to be had. All is not lost. The cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb that Christ came out of gives us hope for reconciliation with God even when we have gone against Him in His commands regarding divorce. Jesus invites those who have repented of their sin and believe in Him to remember his body broken for them and his blood shed for them. And so divorcees in this room, if that is you, and it was on unbiblical grounds, Jesus Christ still says, I died for you and I died for that sin of divorce. I've died for that sin of adultery and remarriage after divorce for unbiblical reasons. I've died for that. 
And if you will believe in me and trust in me and obey me from this point forward, you are pure and clean and righteous before me and my Father. We spend so much time in counseling in this church in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. I wear these pages out in my Bible. I've got them right here. They're ingrained right here. For godly grief produces repentance that brings about salvation without regret. Love that phrase, without regret. The chain reaction is godly grief. I have sinned against God. The result of that is repentance. God, forgive me. The result of that is salvation when God says, I forgive you. And the result of that is you can live life without regret, even when you've sinned against God. So if you've been divorced in the past, and if you've remarried wrongly, you're living in sin, you can repent of that, and you can literally, through the blood of Jesus Christ, live without regret. The verse goes on in, in, in verse 11, and it talks about earnestness and eagerness and zeal and punishment and fear, dismay, all these things towards the sin. But at the end, it says in verse 11, in all things, you have been proven innocent in the matter. That innocence, that proclamation of innocence in the matter of divorce or adultery and remarrying because you, after you've divorced for unbiblical reasons, through repentance, you can be proven through the blood of Jesus Christ, innocent before God in the matter. That's good news. Here's my comfort for those that have experienced the tragedy and the wrongness of divorce. So as we now move to come to this table, I want you to consider this morning divorcees, that you can be pure, washed white as snow because of the blood of Jesus Christ that you're going to remember that was shed when you take this cup. You can be forgiven for the sin because the sin that broke your relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father, that sin was broken with Jesus' body and you now can come to the Father through Jesus' body and blood and be considered righteous and innocent in the matter. That's good news. And that is why we come to the table often to remember Jesus and what he did as a substitute for us on the cross. This act of remembrance that we're going to do prepares us for a day off in the future when we will dine with Jesus Christ as his bride again. This is a marriage feast. Jesus did it one night for the last time with his apostles. He says over in Matthew uh, 20, where is it? 22, this just occurred to me, we need to read this. Somebody help me. There we go. 26, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is another occasion where Jesus will dine with his disciples. And that, that uh, dining experience is explained to us in Revelation chapter 19. I want you to listen to this. John writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. The bride is us, followers of Jesus Christ. But we have sinned against Christ. Yet this text says that we will be clothed in fine Linen, pure and bright, which is a sign of absolute purity and absolute innocence.
So as we come to this table, we are remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. And we are readying ourselves for when we will dine with Jesus in pure white linen as his bride. And in the meantime, may we proclaim that truth in our marriages with one another. So as we come now to this table, let me, let me tell you, you are welcome to this table if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are in a position to remember what he's done for you. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and surrendered your life to him, this table is not yet for you. We'd love for you to come to this table at the right time, but you are not ready to worship Christ for what he's done for you because you don't believe yet what he has done for you. We also would want you to know that coming to this table is saying, I have identified with Jesus Christ through a profession of faith in him and an obedient lifestyle to him. And if disobedience exists, now is the time for you to pray and repent so that you can come to this table innocent in the matter and not eat or drink judgment upon yourself. And so in Matthew 26, Jesus sets the table up with his apostles with this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is what we are going to remember now as we come forward to take this supper. As you come forward, I want you to receive the elements at each station. Eat the bread as you get it and move down to the next end of the table and take the juice and drink it as you get it. And then you can proceed back to your chair. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to walk down these steps and I invite you to come forward and take this meal when you're ready. Let's pray. Father, we, we've been instructed by you, your son Jesus, speaking to us on the, the truth of marriage as you established it in the book of Genesis. Father, we struggle to live that out in this fallen world that we live in. But I pray that through the preaching of such texts, you would equip us and find us faithful to portray the gospel of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church all the days that you give us married life. Jesus, we thank you for breaking your body in our place so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for shedding your blood so that we can be washed pure, dressed in white linen on that day when we will dine with you again for all of eternity. We pray that you would be honored and worshiped well as we now remember what you've done for us. And I pray this in the name of our Savior and our substitute, Jesus Christ.